You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogunbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The American state of Ohio is voting today on whether to enshrine abortion rights in its constitution. After losses in six other states, those who are against the motion have opted for some new tactics. Will they work? And lying to get a job has become rather normalized, Even if you don't explicitly lie, you might opt for some carefully crafted exaggeration to help make your case. And it turns out that the applicants aren't the only ones being dishonest. But first... Today marks one month since Hamas launched a brutal attack on Israel. On October 7th, More than a 1,000 civilians were killed and hundreds more were taken hostage. Since then, a cycle of violence has taken hold. Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. More journalists have reportedly been... For weeks, the Gaza Strip has been under sustained Israeli fire. And on Monday, the UN General Secretary, Antonio Guterres, called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says the Palestinian death toll has now passed 10,000. But relief looks vanishingly unlikely. Well, there'll be no uh, ceasefire, general ceasefire in Gaza without the release of our hostages. As far as tactical... Overnight, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, said that without a hostage deal, Israeli strikes and its mounting ground assault will continue. He also suggested that a post-conflict occupation may follow. I think Israel will, for an indefinite period, will have the overall security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. When we don't have As devastating images are disseminated across the Middle East, There are growing concerns that the war may spill over into a regional conflagration. Those fears are particularly pressing in neighbouring Lebanon, where Hezbollah is the country's most powerful military force. Over recent weeks, sporadic border battles between Israel and this Shia Muslim militia have threatened to escalate. In an attempt to stop this happening, Lebanon's Prime Minister is launching a peace plan one which he has laid out to The Economist. Najib Makati is Lebanon's prime minister. He's serving his third term. He's a businessman, a tycoon. By background, he's more accustomed to being in a boardroom than on a battlefield. Nick Pelham is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. 
he's not a regional heavyweight by any stretch of the imagination. So I was a little surprised when he wanted to weigh into one of the region's sort of most intractable conflicts at uh, one of its worst moments in the last 75 years. It drew home the extent to which Lebanon feels that it's on the brink of yet another conflagration of being dragged into another Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I had a sense of his desperation that he wanted to do all he could to stave that moment off, and hence why he decided to launch a peace plan. So tell me about the plan. What's the goal here? The goal is to prevent an escalation along Lebanon's southern border, Israel's northern border. We don't need another war in Lebanon. My country has already taken... Uh, its shares of pain, immense human and material losses. I believe enough is enough of war. We have to look... There's been an exchange of fire, cross-border fire, at its most intense since the 2006 war that Israel and Hezbollah fought. And casualties on the Hezbollah side, they're probably about a fifth of what they were in the entire 2006 war. So we're really seeing a momentum which is dragging both sides into escalation and... The Lebanese Prime Minister, he's essentially laying out a three-point plan for de-escalation. And what are the three points of the plan? First, he wants a humanitarian pause lasting five days. During that period, under the plan, Hamas would free some of its hostages, primarily civilians and foreigners, and Israel would open Gaza's gates for humanitarian aid. Both sides would stop firing rockets. And if that ceasefire held, then they can move to a second stage and make it permanent. Let's, let us be honest. Most Palestinian and Israeli have the right to security, justice, and opportunity in land they can call their own. Western and regional leaders would then begin on a third stage, which would be an international peace conference for a two-state settlement for Israel and Palestine. This is area very important. Two states for two people. So let's take a look at that first point on a ceasefire. How might he bring everyone to the table on that? I think it's unlikely that he's going to bring everyone to the table. Lebanon doesn't have diplomatic relations with Israel. And we've seen over the weeks that even Israel's closest allies are struggling to persuade it to open its gates to humanitarian aid. But I think there's a real sense of urgency in Lebanon and in the region and internationally as well that this conflict needs to be contained. Otherwise, it's going to set the entire region aflame. And where I think Mr. McCarthy can have clout is with those in Lebanon. Hezbollah is not alone. It does have to deal with other uh, constituencies there. Mr. McCarthy is Sunni. Um, there are Christians it has to consider. And then in the region beyond, McCarthy also has ties with others in the Gulf and in Iran as well as in the West. And he can, I think, make it clear just how Lebanon is going to be caught in the midst of this conflagration if the world can't keep the parties back. We are in a bad economic situation in Lebanon and we we would like to avoid the war because this war, it's going to cost a lot, not only for Lebanon, for everybody. So I I think just that sense of escalation is itself a driver to trying to achieve a ceasefire. So that's Mr. McCarthy's plan. How has he been attempting to get it off the ground? So he's been trying to sell the plan to regional leaders. He's been in Doha, the Qatari capital, where there's been a flurry of diplomatic activity. Mossad's chief, David Barnea, has been there, and Hamas's leaders are based there. What I'm trying to do is to make the right pressure 
locally and, and regionally and international level to say that, please, we would like to prevent war in Lebanon. He's been to other regional capitals. He's been talking to Iran, to the Iranian foreign minister. I cannot predict or say on behalf of Hezbollah or on behalf of Iran. Uh, but as I'm seeing and as uh, we are following, they are keen to have a ceasefire now. And, and Iran's formal position is that they want a ceasefire too. They don't want to see an escalation which could bring them into confrontation with America, with its carrier strike groups off the coast of Lebanon. And he says that he's spoken to foreign ministers of Western countries, including the United States, Britain and France. Western powers are looking, I think, to Lebanon to try and contain this conflict. But with tensions in the region so high, this is quite a task, no? War fever is raging in the Middle East, and it's going to be hard to find a way for the parties to climb down. Many Arabs are going to flinch at Mr. McCarthy's implicit recognition of the Jewish state, particularly at a time of this extensive killing across Gaza. And he may also have a difficult time convincing Iran, a country which he says is integral to this process. The rising death toll in Gaza also dims the immediate prospects for peace, and Hamas is appealing to Hezbollah to open a second front. So, Many fear that Hezbollah could be dragged in, and if there is a further escalation, that could make a peace plan even harder to achieve. So there are a range of knotty issues facing Mr. McCarthy, both regionally and at home. Does that undermine his ability to negotiate a peace deal? He is something of a placeholder in Lebanon. He's been grappling with its two biggest problems, the collapse of its economy, the clear-up after this huge explosion that wrecked Lebanon's port and much of the capital, Beirut. And you know he really hasn't been able to make much a dent in either of those. And so I think there is a kind of big question mark. If he can't repair his own country, how can he possibly bring about a deal in the Middle East? One of his confidants said that his connections in the West and the Gulf and Iran could make him uniquely placed to sell an inclusive plan. But he just lacks the clout to bring these groups together. He presides over a broken country. His own army is no match for Hezbollah. So all he can really do is use his powers of persuasion. So the question doesn't seem to be so much whether this particular peace plan would work, but whether any could. In a sense, we have been here before. At some point, the dust settles, there's rubble to be cleared up uh, across the battlefield, whether it's in Gaza or beyond. And I think the question is now, has this conflict been so horrendous? Has the death toll been so punishing that it's going to force parties across the board to realize, you know, enough is enough. Are they going to try and resolve this once and for all? Or is this just going to be yet another in an endless cycle of conflicts where there's no resolution? The reality is that civilians across the board are paying the price for this conflict. And I think it's taken a civilian like Mr. McCarthy to come in and say, maybe at the end of this, there can be a deal. Uh, I believe it is possible to get a diplomatic uh, solution because we don't have any other choice uh, in the light of this uh, number of casualties we are in. I believe when there is a will, there is a way. Thanks very much for your time, Nicholas. Thank you as always.
guys, I won't lie. I am running out of new ways to tell you that you need to get an Economist Podcast Plus subscription. Whether it's to enjoy our longer weekend show with much deeper storytelling from our correspondents or to enjoy our weekly feature shows, there's something for everyone. If you already have a print and digital subscription, don't forget to link your account or you can listen to our podcasts in our handy Economist app. And if I finally sold you on a podcast subscription, just follow the link in our show notes. Abortion is talked about a lot in America. It's been a year and a half since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and in turn, the federal protections of abortion rights. I am unapologetically pro-life. We need to the topic is still at the centre of a lot of protests, political campaigns and debates in state legislatures across the country. I will support the cause of life as governor and as president. Can't we have a minimum standard in every But the state language the that people are using to talk about abortion, especially in these campaigns, is changing. And one vote today might be the test of whether that new language is working. Ohio is voting today on whether to add the right to an abortion to their state constitution. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent. In the past, Ohio has been a swing state turning from red to blue at presidential elections. But in the past few decades, it's become steadily more conservative. And so this vote today is a test of whether anti-abortion activists can avoid losing even in a pretty Republican state. And so for those of us who haven't been following this story, give us a bit of context here. Abortion is currently legal in Ohio up to 22 weeks, which is around viability. But that's only because a six-week ban is being litigated in the courts. And it was in place for several weeks last year. It's known as the Heartbeat Bill. And it drew national attention when a 10-year-old rape victim had to leave the state to get an abortion. And the vote today would add the right to an abortion up to viability and after for the life and health of the mother to the state constitution. And the important piece of context here is that six other states have voted on abortion rights since Roe versus Wade was overturned last year. And in each of those states, abortion rights have won. And so there's a bit of a cottage industry for these votes at this point, where strategists and pollsters travel from state to state trying to win for their side. And both sides are trying new messaging in Ohio, because Ohio is a pretty Republican state, and the party here has been heavily involved in the campaign. And so if abortion activists can't win here, then they're really going to struggle elsewhere. Stevie, you say both sides are trying new messaging. What kind of new messaging are we getting from the supporters of women's rights to abortion? So abortion rights campaigns have found a lot of success in the last year talking about individual rights and stopping government control over healthcare. They've even linked it to mask mandates from the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a real libertarian streak to these campaigns, and that's been really successful in places like Kansas. They're explicitly designed for people who might normally vote Republican. But the language in Ohio is much warmer, and it's much less individualistic. As a pastor, I've counseled families on the most important personal decisions, even abortion. This ad for the abortion rights campaign, it has a pastor sitting in the pews, he's talking to you, and it's still about avoiding government control. It gives families the freedom to make their own decisions. It's talking about families' choices rather than a woman's right to choose. 
I spoke to Gabriel Mann from the abortion rights campaign, and he said that this was a deliberate choice. We're focusing on families, on couples, because those are the people who are impacted by abortion bans. Many people who seek abortion access already have a child, one or more. They're already moms. It's also perhaps more appealing to men that this is not a woman's issue, but a family one. Gabriel Mann said on a campaign like this, people generally already know how they think about abortion, but this campaign is more about getting people to actually turn out and fill out a ballot. And that's where men might come in. There have been a lot of partners who've been doing great work, stigma busting, talking about the value of abortion access, abortionist health care, that kind of message. That's not necessarily the main point of this campaign. It's not directly focused on how do you feel about abortion. The main point of this campaign is don't let the government take this decision away from you. And so what we're seeing here is that abortion rights activists are really adapting their language, adapting their campaign for the politics of each state. And how about their opponents? What are they up to? Anti-abortion campaigners are trying a really novel campaign in Ohio. It's all about parental rights. Here's one of their ads. Currently in Ohio, if your minor child wants to have an abortion, you as a parent have the right to object or consent. This amendment takes away all those rights. This is too extreme for Ohio. We should vote no. So the anti-abortion campaign is arguing that if this amendment passes, Ohio's parental consent and notification laws around abortion would be overridden. The legal scholars I spoke to said that was definitely a stretch. But it does tie the campaign to other parental rights issues about what kids have been learning in school and care for trans kids. And those have been big issues in Ohio and across America recently. And so the campaign lines that you often hear in anti-abortion campaigns, like about health and safety protections or late-term abortions, which are rare but very unpopular, they are coming up in this campaign, but they're really secondary to this parental rights message. And why are they not using those tried and tested messages anymore? Partly because they weren't successful in other states, so they're having to try and find something new to maybe make this result different. Something that you see in a lot of areas of American politics is one side saying that the other side is just too extreme. So anti-abortion campaigners are saying that this amendment would be too permissive for Ohio. And the abortion rights campaign is saying the alternative is the six-week ban, which could be reimposed really whenever by the state courts. Those on the anti-abortion campaign, they've really been running from any mention of the six-week ban. There are exceptions in our law today. Put aside the heart. So this is what the exception. advocate for the anti-abortion campaign, Mehek Cook, said in a recent TV debate. For the life of a mother, today we have a 22-week ban. That is our law in Ohio. But that's not what we're talking about, Curtis. This amendment allows for full-term, late-term abortions, partial birth abortions. The The abortion amendment on the ballot today would allow for abortions after viability, but only where the life or health of the mother was at stake. This is similar to a standard under Roe versus Wade. What's interesting is that Governor Mike DeWine, who is a Republican and is very popular in Ohio, he's staunchly anti-abortion. He signed the six-week ban. And he's campaigning against this amendment today. But he said there's a willingness to soften the six-week ban. He said that he wants to end up with an abortion policy in Ohio that the majority of people accept and the majority of people are comfortable with. And we've been hearing similar noises around abortion bans in other parts of the Republican Party recently. Donald Trump, the former president, said a six-week ban was a, quote, terrible thing. Sean Hannity, the Fox News host, said that results of other votes have been, quote, sobering. But what the alternative would look like and how it would pass, particularly in Ohio's state house, which is heavily Republican, that's not clear, and Governor DeWine hasn't specified. 
And do you think these revamped campaign slogans will be enough to make Ohio any different from those other states that have voted for abortion rights? I think what makes Ohio most different from other states is the strength of the state Republican Party. The Ohio ballot board, which has a Republican majority, rewrote the summary language on the ballot to replace the word fetus with unborn child. And even earlier this year, the state assembly proposed its own referendum, which would have made passing this abortion amendment much, much harder. That failed, and it's given a lot of confidence to abortion rights campaigners for the vote today. But both campaigns are relying on turnout rather than persuasion, and that can be really hard to predict, especially in a year without a presidential election. Either way, whatever happens in the results today, it won't stop in Ohio. The result is going to shape future campaigns because several states are expected to have their own votes next year, possibly including Florida, Missouri, and Arizona. In fact, the heartbeat bill was first proposed in the Ohio State House, and it was copied in state houses across the country because ideas that start in Ohio, they don't tend to stay there. Stevie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. So what would you say is your biggest weakness? Well, I have a tendency to take on too much because I like to help wherever I can. Well, I guess sometimes the thing is, I just care too much about my company and its success. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so sometimes I just get too focused on getting the details right. The process of hiring people is a curious dance where a prospective employee tries to avoid saying anything that might put off an employer. Andrew Palmer writes The Economist's Bartleby column on management and is the host of our new podcast series, Boss Class, which explores secrets to being a better manager. But if recruitment is a battle between duplicity and candor, it's not just fought between truth-seeking firms and self-promoting candidates. Everyone is tempted to gloss over the truth, companies included. But let's start with the candidates. The whole point of a CV or a LinkedIn profile is to massage reality into the most appealing shape possible. Everyone beyond a certain level of experience is a transformational leader, personally responsible for generating millions in revenue. The world economy would be about 15 times bigger than it actually is if all such claims were true. The average Briton spends four and a half hours a day watching TV and online video. But while most of us are hanging out on the sofa with a bag of crisps for company, job candidates are a different breed. They only use their spare time for worthy purposes, like volunteering in soup kitchens or teaching orphans to code. The cover letter is another triumph of dishonesty take the tone that they usually take. When I saw the advertisement for this job, 
I almost fainted with excitement. It's so transparent in its insincerity, in fact, that some people are starting not to bother with it at all. And at the interview stage, those cliched questions about a candidate's weaknesses and failures are there for a reason. No one will bring them up unprompted. But applicants are not the only ones with a tendency to stretch the truth. The typical firm will write a job description that invariably describes the work environment as fast-paced and innovative. They'll then lay out a set of improbable requirements for the ideal candidate, a person who by definition is fictitious. When ads demand more years of experience in a programming language than that language has existed for, these requirements apparently include an ability to go back and alter the course of history. Things get worse when hirers use bots to sort through the pile of applicants. There are now services that scan your resume when you're making an application, and they'll mark you down if your CV does not match the keywords that appear in the original job post. The message to job applicants is clear. To get through to the next stage, just parrot back the sort of language that the hiring firm wants to hear. One software engineer claims to have got a 90% plus response rate with a spoof CV that showed apparent spells at Microsoft and Instagram. But it was stuffed full of nonsense too. It boasted, among other things, that she'd increased team bonding by organizing the company potato sack race and that she spread herpes STD to 60% of the intern team. Encouraging mindless exaggeration is not the only way that firms can distort the hiring process. Too few firms offer an accurate account of what an open position actually involves or what their cultures are like. Every job has its bit of drudgery. No firm suits everyone. That's why Tracy Franklin, the chief HR officer for Moderna, and an interviewee in the third episode of our new podcast, Boss Class, is a fan of what are called realistic job previews. These are meant to give prospective recruits a genuine sense of the negatives and positives of the job, as well as a clear idea of the company's corporate culture. One way firms do this is to lay out, in text or video, what a typical day in the role would look like. Such honesty can be its own reward. Long-standing research suggests that realistic job previews lead to lower turnover and higher employee satisfaction. The fact that this creates a positive image of the organization's honesty is the best explanation for why that's probably the case. If candidates were always to give genuinely truthful answers, I have a habit of making basic but calamitous errors. Many would rule themselves out of a job. If firms were to give a warts and all description of themselves, many would end up deterring good applicants. But a process designed to uncover the truth about job applicants would run a lot more smoothly if firms were first willing to be honest about themselves and own up to their own weaknesses. To listen to the entire seven-episode arc of Boss Class, subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus now. The link is in the show notes. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. 
how are you enjoying all of our new content? Let us know at podcasts at economist.com. Remember, if you're still on the fence about whether or not you'd like to subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus, you can get a free trial by following the link in our show notes. So enjoy, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.